Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. Do you want to start? Okay. Hello. And welcome to episode 47 of the world-famous Tetchwadsworthy podcast, listened to by 3.3 million people. Yep. Yeah. I'm Eric Bernard. Oh, God, this takes me by surprise every single time. Uh, I'm so the Hulk. Lame. You're, Who? You're, I'm the Hulk. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Two-minute rule was in effect. Oh, yeah, Chopper Reed. Um... Yeah. Yeah. He's Croatian. Did you know that? He's actually called Bananovic or something? Bananovic? Bananovic. Bananovic. Because he's from Australia, but he's, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yes. That's not um, surprising. Okay. Two minute rule. I've already mentioned that. Drinking game. I've already mentioned that. Do we have any. In this episode, loads of stuff. Let's just launch into it. Yeah. Any newsy type stuff, follow up stuff? We can do that. Uh, <clears throat> well, nothing's happened to me in the last week. What about you? Well, um, God, I've just finished that cryptozoology book, so uh-huh. I'm currently compiling the 166 illustrations that I'd like to use. Now, I don't think the publishers are too keen on that, but um, that's fun. Um, follow up, uh, just want to say that we mentioned the breaking news in the last episode about Homo naledi, this new uh, hominin. And uh, I think I said that a specimen was found in a cave, as if there was one. And the amazing thing is they've got like 15 of them that were found in a cave. So uh, that's a really amazing thing. And this team of uh, women that went into the cave and uh, retrieved them, that's a fascinating story in itself. Uh, Somebody made cake, which I saw on Twitter. It's like a mock-up of the cave system. And so, and funnily enough, right... I've recently watched a film called The Descent, which is about a team of women that go into caves. They don't find fossil hominins. They find, like, kind of vampire type creatures that are hominins. But, um, uh-huh. yeah. That's well, maybe that's film. what these were. I mean, they're dead now, but you never yeah. know. Yeah. 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 Well, the d- dentition's totally different. But, um, well, like, you know how but- in vampires <laughs> they retract, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've seen no, the in those documentaries was- about them. Right, I, I was quite impressed with the descent. It's good for me, good movie, but I'm going to go off a tangent if talk about that. Um, that's the only follow-up stuff I had. I mean, there's obviously a few comments uh, on the lot from the last episode regarding stuff we should have mentioned and didn't, and I can't remember something to do with it. We should have said that small dinosaurs would have used seeds as a resource. That's possible. I thought we did um, mention that, but yeah, I can't Maybe remember. Yeah, uh, some other stuff. I think Irene had some comment on uh, amphibians I think it's too much trouble to check now um, there you go follow up yeah. <laughs> there, yes was there follow up yes there was <laughs> there now moving was. on yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen Spaced the entire TV series uh, I haven't seen the entire series but I have seen okay. maybe a couple of series series one episode four I think Daisy Steiner has to go and get a job at a magazine and uh, <laughs> so she does she, it's a it's a kind of like 
uh, woman's magazine about current affairs and fashion and stuff like that. So she goes and does loads of research. She goes to a news agent and you just, this montage just five minutes where she's going, research, 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 flicking through magazines. And she spends like, you know, 70 pounds on newspapers, broadsheets and magazines and stuff. <laughs> and she goes back home and sits down, really happy with the stuff that she's done on this research. And she's rehearsing the, how the interview might go to herself. <laughs> She imagines being asked, what do you think about current affairs? And her response is, yeah, I like current affairs. I think they're good. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, that was a bit strange. That was a a long tangent. That's that's one of my favourite things on TV ever, Space. I love it. Um, News from the world of news. Mm. Okay. There's two things I want to mention. Briefly, two-minute rule. Mm. You keep your, eyes on, keep your eyes on the clock. Bloody hell. Okay. Come on. Do your right. job. Mm-hmm. Um, fighting Apatosaurines. Oh, yes. Now, this was a thing at SVPCA. And, okay, so myself, Mike Taylor, Matt Wade, and Brian Eng are putting together a paper on uh, the idea that the necks of Apatosaurine sauropods were adapted for combat. This is an idea we've been talking about for years, and we're finally putting it into a paper. Um, I don't really want to say any more than that, I, because normally the plan is, you know, you finish the paper and put the and publish the paper, and then you talk about it. But due to the preprint system that's now becoming increasingly common in paleontology, um, like the preprint of uh, sort of a prototype version of the general thoughts and the abstract that was, was used for the SUPCA meetings already online. And already there's like some discussion emerging from it. I think um, by the time this podcast is out, uh, hello, future people, there will be like an SV Power article on the SV Is an SV Power article. Is there? Yes. Well, they- so already I'm behind the times. Yes. But, uh, yeah, so, so there you go. So this idea is out there, and we want people to kind of talk about it, but we'll be obviously discussing it in detail, uh, putting our case together in a published paper. So Because that's, pre- that's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, the idea of sauropods yeah. fighting with their necks. Uh, Apatosaurians, of course, are not just any old sauropods. They've got crazy necks, which is why we've put together this idea. The, there's a whole suite of adaptations in Apatosaurian necks that make their necks very different from those of other sauropods. That's the point. Yeah. Um. That was within two minutes, right? Uh, okay. Possibly, yeah. Uh, Although I think you probably could have spent longer on that, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> We've got a lot, got a lot to do here. Uh-huh. Uh, I also <laughs> want to mention... Man. Busy, busy, busy. Uh, I, I want to talk about this new paper in PeerJ, Open Access Journal, uh, by Bobby Bosnecker and Ewan Fordyce on a new Oligocene stem Mr. Seat whale, an early baleen whale called Waharoa from the uh, Oligocene of New Zealand. It's uh, Eomysticeted, which is a, a crazy long-skulled uh, group of uh, early Mysticetes. And there's a... Uh, Eomysticetes is obviously the, the, type, the type genus. There's a bunch of new ones that have been named Tohorata, uh, Yamatocetus, Tokorahia, and Waharoa. <laughs> <laughs> the names of these things. There is, there is an explosion of recently discovered fossil baleen whales it's crazy number of these things this is a huge novel area of research and uh, this paper by bobby and ewan fordyce is um yeah pretty impressive work and a huge amount of uh, anatomical information and i believe you can actually uh, don't have this in front of me now but i think you can download 
um, like 3D scans oh. of some of the bits of the skull and print them yourself. You can cool. print your own Waharoa skull. But the reason that it's the reason that it's a bit more newsworthy than just another fossil stem baleen uh, whale is is their phylogeny, because as you'll know, there's long been this argument over uh, where Caperia, the pygmy right whale, where that belongs within my sea phylogeny, and this issue of is it or is it not related to cetotheres. Cetotheres are this like you know large uh, group of um, small to mid-sized archaic baleen whales. It's been suggested at times that they're sort of related to various of the living uh, baleen whale lineages, like grey whales or right whales. And several, well, two studies published in the last few years um, uh, argued on the basis of you know character evidence and where animals fit within phylogenies, they argued that Caperia, pygmy right whale, living pygmy right whale, is a living cetothere. So, right, so that's quite a big deal. It's like, wow, this previously thought extinct group is not extinct at all. There's an extant representative. But this new study, Bosonecker and Fordyce, mm-hmm. no, they don't find Caperia to be there. They find Caperia to be close to right whales, which is a kind of more traditional position for it. Uh, I haven't seen this bigged up. I haven't seen anyone flag this up yet. Like, oh my God, they're saying Caperia's not, not a Caesarthea. Ah, oh, when will scientists? This is why science doesn't work. <laughs> Make up your minds. I haven't, I haven't seen any outcry of that nature. But uh, well, there's a surprise. Like <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should but, blog about. But that. also, it's sort of it's a bit more of a, a boring result, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, All but, right. No, it was the boring result after all. Yeah, that really exciting idea we came up with a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But then, of course, you know, phylogenetic hypotheses are hypotheses. So they are liable to change as for as long as we will, we will be running them, for as long as we are incorporating new data into these. And, and that's what some... I don't, need to, I don't need to tell this to the majority of our listeners, or indeed to you, but it's what some detractors and sceptics of phylogenetics and not good sceptics but bad sceptics yeah. <laughs> I think it's a complicated what they don't get yeah it's one of the most complicated issues in uh, philosophy of science figuring out what cladistics is doing in terms of how we how sure we can be of the results but I think it's fairly clear that we can be sure of the bigger picture stuff but once you get down to things that are separated by you know um 10 steps or something like this. This is, feels like, yeah. well, this is sort of in the error bars of cladistics, right? Even exactly. the big analysis. So, It's what yeah. we were talking about last time, wasn't it, in connection with... Like, so whether something is a, an early bird or a bird-like dinosaur, yeah. yeah, it's so close. Two or three nodes, that the general region of the cladogram, yeah, is, is within, within error bars. But where you're talking about things moving 50 nodes or 100 nodes in and out of whole groups... Well, that can still happen, you know. Molecular phylogenetics has taught us that, Afrotheria and so on. But, um, but in general, yeah, the general, yeah, the especially general- if you've got you've got a bunch of transitional sort of closely related things or very similar things, um, that sort of jumping is unlikely to happen. Jumping can happen when you've got a big you're inferring a whole um, transition that you don't have the fossils for right yeah yeah and in general results are becoming more similar over time trees are converging on the same results but there will always be these small differences and in this case this difference is not whether caperia is a cetothere or not we're talking about a change of again i think it's a few nodes so uh so a huge fanfare 
when you find Caperia to be within seed theory might be inappropriate given that it only takes it yeah it only takes one or two two or three additional character changes for it to be pulled out of that group and I think that's what's happened here although having said that as usual I haven't read the study I don't know <laughs> I don't know if they comment on this themselves I just thought I should flag it up so there we go because yeah. I've got a special interest in Caperia I've written about it extensively at Tetsu there's like four or five articles on this very weird uh, interesting whale it's got a whole suite of like you know things that make it unusual compared to other baleen whales. Okay, that's way too much time spent on that. You did not do your job there. Well, it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, we've got <laughs> things... Yeah, I don't think History we should be... Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> should we do a... <laughs> should we do a cash for question, then? Yeah. Right, which one do I want to go for? It's not what you uh, want to go Well, when yeah, you- it kind of is. Well, I could yeah. go for the oldest one first. 78. Okay, that's by this is this one by from Alex Serdich. We now come to the part of the show we like to call Cash for Questions. <laughs> Just side. It's Alex gonna be most Sir. of the show again because we've got a Yeah. We've got a lot of cash for questions. Yeah, if you don't like it, tell us yeah. or stop listening. It's up yeah. to you. <laughs> or give us the equivalent amount of money to shut up all the que- other questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way to stop it <laughs> that's a good alright ok Alex volunteers at a museum at a country park with a whole bunch of deer the other week I was out oh, it's a little story here isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah go ok, okay. <laughs> most of the red deer had congregated near the path I take hey, out. Hey, no, you know the other week yeah. on my way I was, out. I was trying to, I was trying to shorten <laughs> this a little bit. Okay, all right, I'll read it out. Alex wasn't listening when we said questions should be about the length of a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> the other week on my way out of the red. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, he wasn't making his way out of the red deer. No, he wasn't making was his the way other out of the red deer. Stop distracting me. Sorry. Okay. <clears throat> this would be good done in an Uncle Darren voice. The other week on my way out, most of the red deer had congregated near the path I take out and had their foals with them for the first foals? time. Foals? <laughs> the first time I'd seen or etc. However, I noticed a couple of does... Geronik reaching up on their hind legs, wafting their forelegs like a skier mid-fall to reach leaves on trees above them. Is this behaviour widespread amongst Servidae and their relatives? Or is this just the latest fad after drinking Batmaning and breading? No, I'm not really sure what. Redding. I don't know what planking is. Either. I don't know what planking is. <sighs> breading, breading is um when you put bread on your cat's face <laughs> around its neck. <laughs> and you take a photo of it and you put it on the internet. <laughs> Batmaning. Batmaning. <sighs> Excuse me. Planking is where you 
imagine you are lying straight with your limbs pressed together against your arms against your sides and then you just <laughs> lie somewhere in an annoying an awkward place right there's a whole episode of the uh <clears throat> so there's a tv show called the office mm. and they wanted to sell it to america but it wasn't good enough for America, so they remade it with different actors. It's called the uh, and over here it's called in here being the UK. It's called the American Office, whereas I believe in the United States it's just called the Office. I don't know, but um, but whatever, it's still good. Actually, anyway, there's a whole there's a whole episode of the American Office all about planking, and there's like bits where <laughs> they'll go into like the the toilets and there's someone <laughs> planking over the top of the stands. Uh, are you still there? Yeah. I thought it had frozen then. No, I'm just not reacting. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so that's what planking is. <laughs> Good to know. Sorry, I... uh-uh. yeah. Have you got an answer about these deer oh, then? Yeah, deer. All right, thank yeah. you. I, I quite enjoyed that question, Alex. Thank you very much. Right, I don't question? think you've ever enjoyed a question quite so much. That was great. <laughs> Jeronicking. Uh, is this behavior widespread among deer and their relatives that basically it boils down to is this behavior widespread (laughs) among deer well the answer to that Alex is not really no right Right, let's move on now there's okay in seriousness there is a tetrapodzoology article uh, which I need to consult in order to see what I said because it's about it's about bipedal behavior in in deer specifically about this subject okay it's called there's a blog called tetrapod zoology currently hosted at scientific american and the article is called confrontational behavior and bipedality in deer and seriously just go and read that because it kind of answers this confrontational okay there's basically a bunch of deer a bunch of deer conventionally included within service the group that includes the sambar a large, robust, dark-bodied deer from tropical Asia, uh, which uh, are regularly uh, bipedal. Very, very, um, very good at being bipedal. They can like walk bipedally, they fight bipedally, and they frequently rear up. <clears throat> now, interestingly, in some uh, artiodactyls, even toad hoof mammals, that is, that practice uh, bipedal behaviour, like the Geronuk, there are a suite of adaptations. Skeletal adaptations associated with this bipedal behavior. So, Geronuk, for example, the ilia, so these are the big bones at the top of the pelvis, the ilia have particularly long anterior prongs, which anchor particularly big muscles that are, you know, associated with the lumbar region, which seem to give extra leverage, make these animals better at pulling their bodies upwards so they can erect the thorax. And then in Geronuk as well, there are also uh, unusual adaptations at the back of the skull to do with meaning that the skull is more strongly flexed relative to the long axis of the neck and there's like elongation in the back of the head. Things that are probably to do with, with keeping the neck at a strong, sorry, the head at a strong angle to the neck, which is, in, which is like a good idea if you're standing, standing by Pedal. Uh, so there's, there are skeletal adaptations that have been identified in Geronuk and which are also seen in some fossil uh, artiodactyls. There's an animal called a noplotherium from the Paleogene of Europe, which has been suggested to be a biped for the, the for the reasons of having these hip and skull st- structures, uh, features. <clears throat> but right, 
when you look at the the deer that engage in lots of bipedal behavior, <laughs> nobody's ever bothered to study them to find out if they've got them at all. And they don't seem to. They actually don't seem to have anything particularly unusual about them that makes them anatomically different from deer that don't engage in this bipedal behavior. Uh, let me just quote myself. <laughs> Do you, can you quote yourself? Of course you can. If it's like self-plagiarism. Yeah, self-plagiarism, which is the thing. Some deer so are surprisingly... It's, 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 it is. Well, it's called it a is. thing, but it's not a thing. But go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, it is. Some deer are surprisingly proficient at bipedal standing and walking. I'm not referring to behaviour whereby they stand momentarily while fighting or lean their forelimbs on tree trunks while standing up tall to browse at height. Rather, I mean they can actually balance and walk bipedally, unassisted, with the body held in a vertical pose. This behaviour is best known for sambar, the males of which will stand and walk bipedally in order to mark overhead branches with scent or horn them air quotes, with their antlers. Note that intermittent bipedal behaviour is present elsewhere in deer. A few species stand bipedally to box, interest specifically, or fight off predators. And then, it's funny how my mind works, because I always think of the same things. Because um, I did it in this article. I, I'm immediately thinking of the videos. Have you seen these videos where hunters, uh, USian hunters, of course, are um, trying to kill a deer, and the deer standing up on its back legs, fighting them, and the deer just just goes repeatedly with its forelimbs. It's standing by Peely and it's just whacking and whacking and whacking and whacking. And the person cannot even begin to fight back. You might think in that behavior, in that situation, oh, I would, I would punch the deer in the belly or grab its scrotum or clutch its limbs or strangle it or something or defend myself. But no, that's not what happened. The person is just going <laughs> sort of like that. Uh-huh. And, the, and the deer is just going... <laughs> in many ways, this really does need to be a video podcast, doesn't it? <laughs> For the listeners, so, uh, yeah. Darren is acting out every part of this uh, scene. <laughs> the deer, the hunter. Yeah. Uh, just, you, like, seriously, you should watch, watch it. It's just hilarious, these videos. They're, they're actually kind of not hilarious for the people that were involved because they're basically brought to the brink of death. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, you can't fight a deer, it would seem. Um, uh, so, so yeah, the, there's, uh, yeah, deer are really good at uh, standing bipedally. And the, the, I, I cover all this in the article. Uh, I, I talk also about the, um, the these features I mentioned, the, in particular the anatomy of the the pelvis. Okay, the 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 the, the muscles involved are the psoas and the uh, one of the lumbar muscles, uh, the gluteal muscles, gluteal muscles, the psoas and some of the tendons involved as well. Right in Gerinux and <coughs> excuse me, you edit that out. In uh, in Gerinux and uh, yeah, some some other some other artiodactyls capable of like proficient bipedality. The psoas, the tendons involved in the like lumbar region, the pelvis, and the uh, uh, the gluteal muscles are particularly big and well developed. Um, so. So yeah, but we don't know whether that's true for these for these deer as well. We don't know if that's true for like sambar deer, and, and, and that's the secret of their bipedality. And there's a really interesting kind of tangent here, which I mentioned briefly. And this is the bipedal goat from 1939. This mutant goat was born without forelimbs, and it was uh, described by uh, well, it was described in a 1942 paper, and um, and 
these features of its body, the anatomy of its pelvis and lumbar region, the muscles and tendons involved were like hyperdeveloped relative to those of regular goats. Uh, so a fascinating example of actually PZ Myers did a um sorry seamless Darren seamless PZ Myers did an article about how this is a good example of how uh, phenotype is you know super variable plastic and not necessarily uh, constrained by what's normally expressed uh, yes. what you would expect from the, the genotype which is kind of the whole gist of the whole that's a whole like evo devo thrust type situation there isn't it yeah um, <clears throat> but yeah that we're actually much more plastic based yeah. on the environment than you might think Something we've covered at length in previous episodes. Indeed. So, yes. Right. Um, so there's the answer. It is, in fact, just a craze like planking, <laughs> batmaning, <laughs> and breading. <laughs> breading. <laughs> uh, but, um, th- yeah, uh, do check out this. You'll find s- the information you seek and re- required references and further reading uh, at confrontational behavior and bipedality in deer which i published in december 2014 yeah so there we go okay that's what i have to say about that and that is it <laughs> and that's the end of that, that book no okay yes good uh what's the next i'll, I'll just uh, yeah thanks alex for that question that amused darren so much <laughs> <laughs> okay Next one. By the Pat- way, baby baby deer are not called foals. They're either called they're called they are called fawns in like little spotted deer, like roe. And that's a bit confusing, are- isn't it? Anyway, what? Go ahead. Yeah, and in larger deer, like um, uh, red deer and stuff, they are. Called, I've forgotten the name. <laughs> <laughs> calves. Mm. They're called calves. They're called calves. Yep. Right. So calves and. I don't know if I go in for all these special names. What's a grimalkin? <laughs> exactly. It's a female cat. How did you not know that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I don't know whether we should do them. Well, we generally don't, do we? It's like all those stupid plurals, like a murder of crows and a parliament of owls and a watchtower of squirrels or whatever. Like, well, we do do them for the bigger groups. We say flock of birds and herd of animals. Yeah, so yeah. and even then people get it wrong. Talk about like a herd of lions. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they do. I've heard this yeah. all the time. It's not a flock of geese. It's only a, it's, when they're flying, it's a skein. And when they're on the ground, it's a herd. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sure, that's right. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what. Well, we should look into what the uh, differences of group structure are, and whether we should have some names that we could different names that you could apply to different animals, based on what group structures they're using. Mm. Like, actually, try and get some meaning into these terms rather than them just being 
arbitrary yeah. and ridiculous. Well, they're all kind of like, but a lot of them have got like a, an, uh, uh, they've got like a, a mythological historical aspect to them yes. because a lot of the animals were originally imagined as um, allegories in like, you know, uh, bestiaries and stuff. So mm. sort of, there's some kind of connotation of them as omens or portents or something, isn't there? Which is yeah. a parliament of owls, you know, is obviously contingent on the idea that owls are wise and that they're, they're reasoning, yeah. whereas in fact they're not. <laughs> but yeah, and, and similar for... So yeah. much like a real parliament then. <laughs> <laughs> Political joke, really Ooh. good. Uh. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> so are we done with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, right, so Patrick Murphy asks, John and Darren, what are your favourite speculatively ev- speculative <laughs> evolutionary worlds and why? So speculative evolutionary worlds. So Patrick is talking about, well, this could be everything. This could be like, you know, alien worlds, alternative timelines and possible future worlds as well. Uh, the sort of, you know, this, and distinguishing between those and whether we should even bother to distinguish between them at all is something I covered in that. Mm. The talk I gave at Tezucon last year. Um, so first of all, due homage to Dougal Dixon, who of course kind of kicked off the speculative evolution uh, um, genre what with after man and then the new dinosaurs and man after man and um, I have to say you know specifically with reference to Patrick's question what are your favourite speculative worlds Uh, Dougal's worlds are not my favourite worlds because I think some of the creatures he invented were really good uh, quite neat. Others were not so neat, but you know, some of the, some of the animals were, were interesting, and the ideas he came up with were really interesting. The scenarios he came up with were interesting, but the worlds are not. Uh, I think he <coughs> deliberately decided to have his uh, speculative creatures in the in the modern day, basically in the modern world. If you look at if you look at the let's let's just stick with After Man, the first one of these books. Um, if you if you look at the environments the animals are in, they're in specifically in modern environments. So, like animals that are meant to be inhabiting, say, Western Europe, are in modern Western European forests and grasslands and stuff. Which, yeah, it just doesn't look right because you know if if you're going to have 50 million years of animals evolving, you sure as hell are going to have 50 million years of plants evolving. Plus, you're going to have substantial like landscape and habitat changes and stuff like that you know the position of the rainforest isn't going to be the same there's going to be new mountains and i know i know he did cover that a bit but um the interview that i did with him which is which is on tetrapods already published a couple of years ago uh, he specifically said in there that his philosophy was that the animals are going to be super weird and a bit alien to people so let's at least make these peculiar animals fit within a familiar environment and that's what he went for you know he literally had these animals in modern day environments so um so so that's kind of a bit of a disclaimer that's why i wouldn't regard dougal dixon's worlds as my favorite um in totally unbiased and not at all egocentric fashion my favorite respective world is the squamazoic which is like full of it's an alternative timeline where for some whatever reason i don't know uh, giant lizards and snakes and amphibians rule the world that's really cool um Darwin 4, which is Wayne Barlow's uh, speculative planet discovered by humans in the near future and inhabited by a range of 
crazy and really interesting creatures, including uh, uh, giant predators and big uh, herbivores, but then also things that are completely, well, truly alien to us, like uh, kind of graviportal gas bag type creatures that live buried in sediment during part of the year and super agile things that are kind of like living jet fighters. Um, his whole world is great. And of course, Barlow's art, uh, well, his style is just really, really suited for that kind of thing. Just the landscapes, the sky and the color of the water, all these sorts of things that he puts into his pieces, uh, just makes it look brilliant. You know, it's uh, you don't even, the version of his book, uh, what's it called? Um, Expedition. Yeah. The version of Expedition that I know best is actually a, a German translation I have. So my understanding of German isn't the bestest, uh, unlike my <laughs> speakings of Englishness. Um, Nehmen Sie die Straße links und ja. Um, <clears throat> But the point is you don't need to read the words because just the, the art, it's about the, the pictures. They are just awesome. Um, what do you think about Barlow? I like Barlow's art, yeah. I haven't actually got that book, so I, I can't comment on it. But, yeah, I like his art very much. Yeah, he good. doesn't do enough. He doesn't do enough stuff, in my opinion. So he's done there's – an, there's an A to Z of dinosaurs written by Peter Dodson, which Barlow illustrated. So 26 uh, dinosaurs – and yeah, just really, really amazing stuff. Obviously, they're a bit old schooly now, you know, scaly skinned manoraptorans and whatnot. Mm. But um, just the 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 the, uh, the composition and the, the stuff he does with light and landscape is just just awesome. Expedition, similarly brilliant, you know. And then his best work, I don't even know if it's, if it's been published as a book, but he did a project on the biology. Uh, ecology of hell. So imagine that hell is a real place inhabited by a real fauna. And a fauna doesn't just involve, you know, things that behave like non-human animals. It's also got whole legions of different, like, demons and, uh, you know, a whole hierarchy of supernatural beings, everything all the way up to, like, Lucifer. It's th- that is just unbelievable. It's It's all, or nearly all of it, is online. Um, yeah, but just his his art is, yeah, yeah. Check it out. So those interested in, in Wayne Barlow stuff, he's done a lot of creature design as well for movies and things. I think he was involved in Avatar uh, and um, uh, Pacific Rim. He designed the kaiju Pacific Rim. Did mm. he? Yeah, we I'm talked about sure. that probably in the episode about Pacific Rim. Yeah, see, I knew that film wasn't just a flash in the pan thing that we'd forget and it would become completely meaningless. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, great film. Great film. Yeah. Well, I think about this a lot because you know, every time you know, I watch Pacific Rim like, on a weekly basis, it's like, I don't really. Um, there's, there's talk of it. The sequel apparently has just been delayed. There. Forever? There's no, forever? There's no rush. Please be forever. Sadly, sorry, sorry, John. It's not, no, it's going to happen, but... <laughs> Probably Godzilla versus King Kong will come oh, out great. for Pacific Rim. I always have to be careful how I say that name. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so getting back to the Spe- point, yeah, what was speculative yeah. So Barlow's expedition, um, and also if we're talking about alien type things, 
Memo Kozman's Snyet. 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 Yeah, however you say it. Um, Which, now, when you invent a speculative world, there are some people, not mentioning any names, there's a certain kind of person who goes to extraordinary trouble to criticize and nitpick and say, this wouldn't happen because this would happen and this wouldn't happen. How, why would you do that? No, 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 no. Right? <laughs> not, not that I've got any problem with these people at all, obviously. <laughs> and uh, there's been a huge amount of stuff online saying that, that, that Kozman's snired creatures, which seem to have two heads, but it turns out that uh, one of them is like a, te- there's a, there's a bunch of like tentacle like structures, which are their actual feeding organs. And then above and reaching over the feeding tentacle organs or organ is a giant, sometimes toothed kind of head like structure, which is used as feeding, but actually originated as a sexual organ. It's basically their genitals have become these like giant, you know, feeding things. Typical memo. Who'd have thought, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, in a speculative world where you're inventing your own scenario, you can do what the bloody hell you like, so long as it more or less matches what we understand, you know, general principles of evolution and physics and stuff. Uh, you can criticise the nitty-gritty, but, you know, it's like, well, you know, all kinds of crazy things have happened in evolution. There's no way you could have predicted because so many factors, um, you know. Uh, yeah, so there's been some people saying, oh, she... Well, whereas I think, I think, why not? You know, it's pretty cool. It's the yeah. interest they look. It's it's how they look. That's the. Uh, well, and also like that sort of criticism. I don't know. It just feels like you wouldn't. Pre- I, those people would never predict the kind of life we have on the planet right now if they didn't exactly. know it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Primates couldn't become bipedal walkers. That's yeah. ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. So, so yeah. And, um, memos projects, uh, 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 just the number of, the number of creatures, the number of lineages that he has invented. And he very much has a kind of like real eye for how real evolution happens in terms of like, you've got a lineage and then several lineages evolve from that lineage. And then within one of those lineages, like another bunch of lineages evolved. And then there are specializations on specializations and this allows that to happen. And, uh, and this, you know, complex branching, uh, uh, pattern of evolution feels, feels very realistic to me. I really in keeping with the, uh, the incredibly complex convoluted, uh, histories of real groups of animals that we see. I think he did a really good job of, um, I'd say one criticism that I would have, and it's a common one of speculative worlds, is that it's a little bit too obvious in places that his animals converge too closely with real things. And there's a, there aren't many examples of that because he's very good at really coming up with truly alien stuff. But there are a few examples. For example, there are basically uh, what are the what are the creatures called? There's a, there's a generic name for his animals. Um, can you look this up while I'm talking? Uh, among among his creatures, the name of this this group of creatures, there's there's like aquatic ones, and there's whale ones, and there's ones that look very similar. The body shape is like a sperm whale. The body shapes of others is like an ichthyosaur. The body shape of others is like a rorqual, and um, it's like okay, we know that marine uh, aquatic creatures converge on a fish-like body shape. That's sort of inevitable. 
if you're if you are vaguely tetrapodish, but um, vertebrateish. Oh yeah, for this things called fish. Forgot about those. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think I think there's just a few of his creatures that are a little bit too obviously uh, sort of inspired by real world, like say cetaceans. But like I say, that's a small criticism because for the most part, it just looks great. His creatures are great. The complexity is great. So so that's one of my favourites. And then the other one, John and I, we spoke about this before tackling this question. Um, final one, the speculative dinosaur project. Uh, the speculative, di- speculative dinosaur project. I take a drink. Is uh, uh, goes your vodka far too quickly these days. Um, <laughs> um, 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 speculative dinosaur project. Speculative dinosaur project. A bunch of people. Including Brian Chu, David Marjanovic, and many, many others. They they have they were sort of inspired by Dougal Dixon's The New Dinosaurs, but they wanted to kind of do it in quotes right. So they came up with animals that really were, you know, more realistic projections of lineages present at the end of the Cretaceous. And uh, they come up with a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of good things in there. There's also a lot of not so good things in there. I think there's some quite silly creatures uh, that often, and often the artwork isn't that great but there's others that are good and the artwork does look great um, <clears throat> any collaborative right. project will be une- more uneven than something come up with by one person won't it indeed um, but there's some, there's some great stuff in there like the leering baby eating pe- <sighs> the leering baby eating penguin of death is a good one um, the giant kaiju penguin of doom. <laughs> These are some of the sillier creatures of the canon, but um, but it's good. There's a and there's a lot of stuff in there that's that's kind of references to real things. There's things that are references to cryptids. Uh, there's all uh, um, animals from mythology, like the set uh, mammal thing, and and also they, um, you know, one of the things that's been spoken about quite a few times. In a, in a world where the end Cretaceous event, the KPG event, as it's known, where that didn't occur, you're supposed to you're supposed to object. MC to that, extinction. Time. <laughs> Thanks, Darren. In a, in a world where the KPG event didn't happen, uh, it's all too tempting for people to do like what Dougal Dixon did in the New Dinosaurs and just imagine a world where there's like, oh, there's a million kinds of pterosaurs doing all the things that birds do. And there's a million kinds of dinosaurs doing all the things that mammals do. Whereas in fact, you can make a, you know, we, obviously we don't know, but you can, you, you might guess that in a, in a world where this extinction event hadn't happened, there might not be many pterosaurs. There might be lots of birds. There might even be lots of big mammals, even. There might be big tortoises and big lizards and stuff. Because, you know, the Mesozoic world was complicated. And it wasn't, it wasn't a dinosaurs-only theme park in the Mesozoic, something I've said a couple of times in writings. Um, but there are also reasons for thinking that, you know, mammals would still have done stuff, interesting stuff, and might still have evolved larger size. Obviously, within recent decades, we've learned there were relatively large mammals badge-sized, dog-sized dog size <clears throat> yes. in the Cretaceous. So, um, and my point is that they, they knew that and they incorporated that into the speculative dinosaur project. They've got like a f- lineages of like reasonably sized mammals, reasonably large-sized mammals living alongside reasonably large-sized dinosaurs. Um, so there's lots of good stuff there. Mm. Um, like a lot of these things, the, the pe- 
People haven't been particularly good at maintaining web presences for these things, and I believe the speculative dinosaur project is offline. Is it? Let me see. No, here it, we go. The 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 get gets moved around a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, here it is. Okay. Well, I think it's all contingent on <coughs> David Marjanovic is um, kind of career wise, and obviously now as a uh, like full time academic working scientist, he's not got he hasn't got any time to do that. And similarly, I mentioned the only I'm afraid the only people whose names I can remember are David and Brian, both whom I know, and both of them are now you know full time uh, academics. Uh, Brian works on fish. Uh, alas, poor Brian, but um, <laughs> apparently he likes that kind of thing. Uh, and of course, David is a uh, very uh, prolific and kind of noted, uh, you know, regularly publishing person who works on the origins of lysamphibians and the uh, affinities of anamniates, a subject we covered in the last episode for those of you interested. And yes, yeah, so so when when you're going to fit something like this into your life, sort of thing you might be able to do as a teenager, but um, as a proper adult, <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to do these things. Indeed. Yeah. Um, Memo's got no excuse. Mm, well, yeah, but he's Memo, isn't he? So. He's Memo. <laughs> all right. <laughs> if you're listening, Memo, we don't mean that in a negative way. Not at all. Um, indeed. <laughs> that is great. Um, okay, I think that's good. See, there's your answer. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Hope you're happy with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just to- um, how do you use it? Okay, so, yeah, thanks, Patrick. Okay, we're going to move on to, uh, let me see, uh, Jonathan Mitchell's question. Here we go. Are there any especially convincing theories for why so many birds have become secondarily flightless while no bats have? Does this situation imply anything about the likelihood of flightless pterosaurs? So, thanks, Jonathan. Good question. Mm. Do you want to start? Uh, you can start if you like. You, you, you have a take on this as well. Unless you don't want to. Unless no, you no, to. it's mo- well. I was just talking, so you should talk, and then I'll talk again. Okay. Well, um, again, yeah, been covered a few times. I've written about it on on Tetrapod Zoology, so you know, there's some stuff about it online already. Check it out. Um, so, so in bats, the wing membranes obviously connect the forelimb to the hind limb, and it would seem that this has, in some ways, maybe kind of like. Uh, it's getting increasingly dodgy to use the word constrain in evolution, but it does seem that it's limited their potential. It's like the, there's like a connected forelimb. The forelimb and hindlimb in bats form a single um, module, like, an, a, a, like a unit. Whereas in birds, this is clearly not the case. The forelimbs and the hindlimbs can do completely different things, and the hindlimbs are not at all contingent on the function of the wing, have no impact on the function of the wing, no real impact in terms of flight. So it's dead easy for birds to... Like, if a bird loses its... If a bird like had its wings chopped off, assuming it's not a hummingbird or a swift, it can survive because it can still run around on the ground, mm. it can clamber up trees, it can do all these kind of things. So it's very easy in evolutionary terms for birds to reduce their wings and uh, still be fully functional on the ground. And of course, they've got, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're brilliant locomotors on the ground. 
a lot of bats are pretty good locomotives on the ground, but they're not brilliant. They are, can easily be inferior to other things that are already running around on the ground, you know, other kinds of mammals and big lizards and whatever. Uh, whereas that's not the case for birds. Birds are extremely proficient on the ground, fast runners, a lot of them. Uh, I think that's basically the, the answer, really. So when you apply this to pterosaurs, well, what we think about pterosaurs is that we think their wing also involves um, a, a, a connection between the forelimb and the hindlimb. The, the wing membrane, uh, the, uh, the what's the main part? The brachiopatagium called? The main part of the patagium? Yeah. It's called the brachiopatagium. The, the, the main span of the main, the biggest part of the membrane seems to connect forelimbs with hindlimbs and thereby may also uh, constrain their abilities to run around terrestrially so obviously there's a whole other story here to do with terrestriality and pterosaurs but that's not the yeah. question here well um, yeah but i would say that in pterosaurs we know that that relationship is not as tight as it is in bats so pterosaurs seem to be far less especially pterodactyloid pterosaurs seem to be far less constrained in what they're doing with the hind legs compared to the forelimbs you know you've got some things with relatively tiny hind legs uh uh large onothocyroids uh Nectosaurus, that sort of thing, you know, really little hind legs. And then you've got things with enormous hind legs, um, like uh, Ashdarkids, you know, really long, robust hind legs that match the forelimbs in many ways. So um, they're much less constrained. And therefore, it would be less surprising to find, I think, to find a flightless pterosaur than a flightless bat. Mm. Um, because I think that they were better on the ground. They had decoupled somehow. Their, I mean, I'm I'm in agreement that the the, the membrane attached to the hind legs, but I, I think that somehow they they managed to make the hind limb well less encumbered by the by being incorporated into the wing than it is in bats. Possibly by not having the main stretchy span go to the ankle, so that the ankle wasn't supporting a whole heap of weight. Right, it wasn't supporting the tension in the membrane or something like this um, so that they could move their hind legs more freely so I think that's probably what's going on and therefore I would predict that yeah, more likely than in bats and you know uh, it, it looks like ash darkets were pretty pretty uh, good on the ground and my bet even for things as like pterodactylus and things like this I'm you know I'm pretty I think they were they were good it's obviously difficult to tell without you know really extensive trackways and uh, without observing them, though, isn't it? Mm. Just how how well they are able to move around. Mm. Um, but yeah, so more yeah. likely than bats, but yeah, they do have a constraint that birds don't have. Yeah, yeah. So, so which the, also gives them an advantage in launching, which I think we talked about a couple of times. That we've, they, I'm pretty yeah. sure we've discussed quad launching, haven't we? Yeah, in pterosaurs. So. Um, yeah, that tends tends to make them more keen on flight than birds would be. Launching's easier for them. Yeah. Walking's slightly more difficult. Therefore, you know, they're going to be more flighty well, than birds. Yeah, if you think about it in terms of, like, uh, the evolutionary opportunities that are available due to, like, contemporaneous animals and you know who's occupying what niches and who's going to outcompete you and who's going to predate on you then uh, it's it would seem that it's most easy for birds to uh, avoid competition or escape predators than it is for pterosaurs uh, and then yeah bats are, you know 
in significant danger of being outcompeted and uh, predated upon. Um, but uh, so, so I think the kind of you know the 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 real the short answer. Jonathan's question, why have so many birds become secondary flightless? It's to do with this fact that the forelimbs and hindlimbs are not connected. They've got um, uh, yeah, hind limbs that allow them to be, well, to be on par with, with, terrest- with potential competitors and predators in terms of like locomotor abilities. That's, that's yeah. the key thing there, isn't it? So, and yeah, you can imagine, yeah, in terms of like uh, sliding scale, who's best at this? Birds are best in terms of like, you know, dealing with terrestrial competitors and predators pterosaurs not as good as birds probably not uh, not as good as outrunning and outcompeting things it, it, more difficult for them to become flightless and bats uh yeah it's uh not so good for them but um doesn't mean it can't happen still could happen but yeah and i would say that some of the best terrestrial locomotors amongst pterosaurs i'm betting were as good as lots of birds yeah but not as good as the best birds yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best birds. The best birds. Well, you know. So thanks to Jonathan Mitchell for that question. And let's do one from... Hang on, hang on. Who's next? Who's next? Yep. E.C. Keel. Macaridon canines seem to reduce the amount of meat that a cat can eat on a carcass. What benefit do the long yet fragile canines offer normal offer over normal canines to counter this cost? Okay. So. Okay. Um, so for those people who don't know, Macaridonts is basically the group of cats that we call the saber-toothed cats. Named for Macaridus from Africa and Eurasia and elsewhere. Smilodon, Homotherium, classic Macaridonts. Um... There's been quite some interest in exactly how the saber teeth of saber tooth cats were used, and uh, they're kind of like traditional. Idea- well, there were sort of these ideas of decades past that they must have been used in a very different way from the way modern cats use their teeth, and that there was some novel feeding style and killing style associated with them. For example, it was proposed that macaridonts were specifically uh, highly um, specialised predators of big animals like small mammoths and giant sloths and such and that they perhaps maybe used these teeth in manners somewhat analogous to those imagined for like Komodo dragons and tyrannosaurs and things. They sort of attacked things from above or from the side and took chunks out of their bodies. There's a there's a specific like I can't remember the name of it, but there's this there's this hypothesis uh which proposes that saber teeth uh we were used to like literally tear chunks out of the, the flesh of uh, big predators. Um, but if we actually look at the, uh, uh, the, 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 the direct evidence we have for which sorts of animals saber-toothed cats were, were killing, you know, based on bite marks on bones and bones associated with their dens and stuff, they don't seem to have been uh, taking animals that were that much bigger than those of non-Macaridon big cats, like pantherine cats, like lions and tigers and stuff, uh, it seems that saber tooth cats were mostly eating like horses and large deer and big antelopes and, uh, you know, baby mammoths, that sort of thing. Certainly animals that aren't beyond the, the, the scope of what you expect for pantherines, conical tooth cats. Um, is there any advantage to, uh, you know, how these, how these saber tooth saber teeth were actually were actually used if you're going for mid-sized prey of that kind what's interesting is that 
uh, saber teeth did not evolve once within one group. They're not specific to this Macarodon group. Um, they may actually have involved many times. They may, did I say the word involved? They may have evolved drink. They may have evolved. doesn't impair my ability to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They may have evolved several times independently within different cat lineages. And, of course, they're also present in non-cats. There are cat-like carnivorans that, that are not members of the cat family and may not even be members of Philoformia. The cat lineage also includes civets and uh, mongooses and stuff. Um, uh, and hyenas, barbarophilids uh, and nimravids, and then you've got them evolving in other carnivorans as well. There's some studies by Mauricio... Oh, I've just, just reminded myself. Uh-huh. Da, 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 da. Okay, hold on. just got to write something down. Okay, good. Don't do that. Right. Um, there's some studies by Mauricio Anton... Alan Turner and colleagues, where they explain that the it seems most likely that the giant saber teeth were used in the normal killing. The normal they were they were used they were deployed in the way that's normal for cats, as in throat biting, throat holding, and stuff. And the advantage they provide is that they basically allow the soft tissues of the throat to be uh, you know, pierced faster the animal to be to be killed much better because to account for the way to explain the way in which saber toothed cats kill, you have to account for the fact that they've got, or you should account for the fact that they've got uh, a far more developed, robust forelimb and pectoral anatomy. They're like way more robust in the forelimbs and shoulders, far more like more muscly, more stronger, more dexterous in the forelimbs and shoulders than other kinds of cats. They also tend to have far more mobility in the hands, particularly the thumb. A lot of them got a particularly big thumb. So these things are in keeping with the idea that uh, if you want to deploy saber teeth, which are quite fragile when subjected to, you know, bending, mm. then uh, you need to restrain, pin down your your prey. So you need to like manipulate it and stuff first. You need to like grab it, bring it down to the ground before you deploy the saber teeth. But uh, I'm concerned that this does seem a little arm wavy, and, and I'm, I'm thinking there's something I've missed about the. There's, there's some critical advantage provided by saber teeth that I've missed in the discussion here, but but that's I think that's a far stronger case. They're proposing that rather than coming up with some novel mechanism for how saber teeth were worked, saber teeth were used. They probably were used in the manner that's typical for cats, but it was that you've got this um, co-option of uh, an ability to restrain, pin down, and manipulate prey, then to deploy saber teeth because you have to do it in quite a precise fashion. Uh, there's now there's some this fits with the fact that saber-toothed uh, carnivorans, not just saber-toothed cats, but other groups like barbarophilids, they seem to have had. There's some indications they had an extended period of parental care with juveniles growing to near full body size, near like adult size, and still not having their saber teeth, and that implies that. Um, that they had to have like an extended apprenticeship where they're not, they're not running out there on their own, jumping on things, learning how to use their saber teeth. Because of course, if you bodge it, you're going to break your teeth off and mm-hmm. being a mammal, they can't replace their teeth infinitely. You can obviously only got one, well, they've got deciduous and adult teeth. So is it that they are actually 
I shouldn't say taught, but is it that they go through an apprenticeship and have to like learn how to use saber teeth and therefore they don't have full-sized proper saber teeth until they're like adult-sized and have learned some stuff about how to tackle and kill uh, prey. I think these several different lines of arguments kind of match this idea that they're they're, they're deploying a throat bite and they're pinning things down, they're, they're manipulating prey, they're using a conventional throat bite. So, um, EC, you forgot to say whose the question is it? No, I said EC Kiel. Sorry, you did say EC Kiel. Yeah. Uh, so EC's uh, question here is okay. I, I, I think I went off at a tangent there. <laughs> none, yeah. none, of what, none of what I said was relevant to the question. It's always difficult to know how to frame these things. No, no um, I think this is a yeah. So, but what is the benefit here? So they were using a. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I would say so everything I've just said implies that the benefit is more efficient um swift less dangerous killing of of the the prey they prefer yeah. because because if you if you are specialized for just like if they're just biting through the trachea and stuff which has been worked out they can do without problem you're able to like kill your prey animal once you've restrained it you're able to kill it in potentially you know seconds to a minute or two whereas these other cats which obviously aren't a bad thing you know they're a very successful group as well but bear in mind saber-toothed cats are not a flash in the pan they're around for tens of millions of years on most continents um the, the pantherine cats the conical tooth cats have to restrain prey and then they have to bite it and suffocate it yeah. for a long time a lot like like hours okay sometimes minutes but it can be hours you've probably seen these videos where lionesses are trying to take on a buffalo and they're throat clamping it and holding its nose and trying to suffocate it for like you know 20 minutes and it can get up and run away (laughs) so that is a obviously that's not an inefficient unsuccessful strategy but it's probably a far more risky strategy that um i don't know maybe maybe less adaptive maybe you know less superior <laughs> less superior <laughs> inferior is what maybe inferior to that of, of a saber-toothed cat in in a world with like a near infinite quantity of mid-sized herbivores horses camels antelopes deer whatever um yeah so it's, it's, yeah uh, an inferior killing style perhaps but obviously you don't have to go around with these ridiculous teeth which are, yeah. as they, as is pointed out, uh, fragile, and I'm sure could you could break them occasionally while you're killing if it goes wrong. Uh, yeah, and and there may be this <coughs> that they require an extended period of apprenticeship. Mm. Uh, where so, and maybe I don't know about this, and I don't know if this has been looked into. But does that mean that that like generational times and how many babies you can have and stuff? the amount of effort they put into having babies, does it give macarodonts, does it give them uh, a, um, what do you call it? It's like a handicap. Does it, does yeah. it mean that they're, they're, they're obviously, in that sense, they're less... Adapted? They're less... No, that's not someone I'm trying to get at. Whose idea was the drinking game anyway? Yeah. Um, <laughs> much better if you weren't drunk right now. <laughs> it's not it's just the edge of drunk um ah, they're 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 um less 
they're handicapped by this. Yeah. They're like they're less able to replace themselves as quickly because they are constrained by this need to. Uh, yeah, it's it's less. They're less able to replace themselves. They're disadvantaged. I think is the word I was looking for. Okay. <laughs> disadvantaged. Um, ECQ also mentions, and, and we should also say just quickly that that a lot of the stereotypes that we have about saber tooth cats. You know, when you say saber tooth cat, you we everyone thinks of Smilodon, and we often think of it in a grassland setting. That is obviously true for some saber tooth cats, but is not true for all of them by any means. There are loads that were living in, you know, shrubby habitats, deciduous woodlands, tropical forests. There were some that were proportioned more like jaguars or leopards than kind of a big, super buff kind of lion like Smilodon. Um, yeah, there are long-tailed ones as well as, you know, we think of them as short-tailed because of Smilodon and Homotherium. But um, they're, they're doing lots of things and they're not all the same body size. There are kind of like lynx-sized ones as well as leopard-sized ones and, and lion-sized ones. Isakiel also has in the question this thing uh, that the teeth seem to reduce the amount of meat they can eat. Well, that is not true. That's uh, Again, that's kind of an assumption and that's proven not to be the case because if you look at how cats actually strip meat off carcasses, they a lot of it is done with the like region behind the canine. And uh, people actually fitted uh, lions with saber teeth to see how they would um, behave. If people have done this as like proper experiments. They put prosthetic teeth on lions, and it's also been done for films. There's a film. I think it might be the Quest for Fire, mm-hmm. where they just they wanted to make some lions look like saber tooth cats, so they like stuck fangs on them as well. And it didn't really affect the feeding behavior at all because a lot of the shearing of a lot of the removal of meat is done with the carnassials. So it's not affected by the uh yeah, by by the canines. So uh so I don't think that I don't think that's that's correct. I think studies have shown that giant giant um saber teeth does not affect the amount of meat they can remove from a carcass. And um uh, I should also say that saber teeth cat macarodonts have projecting and enlarged incisors which like they've got a distinct the, their incisors really come out much further than they do in panthrine cats, mm. which may mean that they were particularly good also at scraping, plucking, and pulling uh, flesh off bones. Which was okay if there was a slight disadvantage having the giant canines. Maybe this was circumvented uh, by these like enlarged, uh, projecting kind of uh, incisor arcade. So there's there's some really cool papers on this. Um, I never covered this on Tet Zoo. I've I've I've, I've read uh, T- Turner and Anton's book on uh, uh, big cats and their fossil relatives. is a good place to start. But there's also some really neat papers uh, on on the behaviour and function of saber tooth cats that have been published, you know, since the late 1990s, and have really overturned this view that they were doing something completely different from panthrine cats. So, uh, so there you go. So there you In go. Some ways, um, it's not really. Uh, well, if you think about how these things would evolve, it makes more sense that it'd be doing something similar but modified slightly rather than something completely different, which would require several different lineages of cats to do some sort of evolutionary jump into a different way of killing things, Yeah, um, which feels much less likely, doesn't it? Rather than a stepwise similar sort of style to other to what they, were, what they started out with. So there we go. Um, yeah. Thanks, yeah. EC. That's a good question. Ready for the next question, Darren? Oh, there's another one. There's another one. Yeah. 
Okay, yep. yeah. Okay, this is from Raven Amos. Um, it's about dong tao chickens. What's up with those feet, and are they a good reference to use for large theropod feet? Hmm. Have you seen these chickens, dong tao? Uh, well, I'm going to look them up. My name's John. Dong. Yeah, they're crazy. Uh, dong tao chickens, as you might guess, Chinese chicken breed, famous for having feet that it's not just the feet; it's actually everything. Well, it's, it's, oh yeah, okay, yeah. It's it's pretty horrible, isn't it? They look they look kind of kind of quite gross. It's, it's certainly everything up to. Well, I guess the tibia is really robust as well. I was going to say everything up to the ankle, which would be called the foot, I guess. But um, <laughs> for those people that don't know, dong tao chickens, their their feet, their, the whole of their the lower hind limbs look like they're about, say, five times bigger than they should be. Um, they're quite long, but then that's not a big deal. A lot of chickens are leggy. A lot of chickens are far longer leggy than you think, uh, particularly like all the fighting Asian ones. And but they're not just long; they're like massively robust. They're hugely wide, uh, really chunky. But then they they look grotesque to us because they're also super gnarly. Mm. They're covered in like lumps and excrescences and like extra scales. Really lumpy, bumpy. It's the sort of texture that we do. Interesting as to why this is actually we people, we humans don't like looking at stuff like that because I guess it reminds us of like disease tissue or papillomaviruses or things just looks really gross they look horrible having said that the one of the few things that's known about dong tao is how incredibly expensive they are they're like designer chickens and good looking ones have exchanged have been sold for that equivalent to thousands thousands of okay i've got no idea of the conversion rate of yen to pounds or other currencies do you no What's, what's like 2,000 yen? Is that like thousands of dollars or pounds? 2,000 what? what yen. Yeah, but Chinese yen? Yeah. Okay, hang on. Australian yen? <laughs> <laughs> Are there other yen? Yeah, I think so. Um, Chinese <coughs> U-N to <laughs> GB. P. British Pines. It's 200 pounds. What? No, that's not right. Okay, forget that. Forget okay. that. It's much more Maybe than that. It's, it's much more than that. It's thousands okay. of dollars. It's thousands of dollars. <laughs> I'm sure it's. I'm sure I read about this. Uh, uh, let me say there is very, very little information on these uh, remarkable chickens. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the what, Encyclopedia Chickens by. The Complete Encyclopedia Chickens by Esther Verhoff and Ard Riss, which is a standard go-to guide on chickens. I have it right at my desk side. Here. See? Yep. Complete Encyclopedia Chickens doesn't mention Dong Tao. Really? So it's not, it's doesn't not even complete. mention them. It doesn't even mention them. And I don't know why that is. Uh, is it that... Well, is it that I haven't looked at the book properly? Or oh, look, an index. <laughs> no, there's no mention of Dong Tao in there. So super valuable. But right, so what is it? What is it that makes their legs, their feet, so crazy? Well, okay. So far as I know, I have looked into this. There aren't any useful studies that really 
talk about their foot anatomy. But what people have said is that the reason that they're so super bulky and gnarly is not, it's not really, uh, I don't want to say it's not reflected in the osteology because I guarantee that's not true. I bet their, I bet their limbs, I bet their bones are, you know, thicker, gnarlier, more robust, bigger than those of other kinds of chickens. But the thing that makes them big is a huge amount of like, uh, yeah, thick, thick layers of skin, uh, collagen tons and tons of like extra skin fibers and stuff that seems to be the thing yeah in view of that this is kind of one of those all yesterday's things um we don't have any indication from fossils that fossil dinosaurs were um you doing a thing like this you know having having like a having a fleshy outline to the foot that's like five times bigger than the skeleton we don't have any indication of that is it possible? Well, it's theoretically possible, but then this isn't a group of animals that's evolved naturally. This is something that people have selected for because, for whatever perverse reason, they kind of like the the well, grotesque. No, I'll tell you why it is. I mean, it seems fairly obvious to me. They eat chicken feet there, right? So a really big, fat, gnarly chicken foot is going to be delicious. It's going to have all the extra stuff on it. Mmm, all those ligaments. Yum, yeah, yum. Yeah, yummy. Crunch, crunch, crunch. <laughs> so... That's what I mean. As you look up, you do, uh, you know, an image search for these. You'll see them cooked up and on plates and stuff. That's what they're for. That's why they like that. People eat them. I didn't even yeah. know that. Didn't think of that. You didn't think of that? <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, kidding. of course they do. So that's what it is. I mean, but so thinking of, I, I'd be very surprised if any wild animal had anything like this. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Having yeah. all that weight exactly where you don't want it. <clears throat> yeah, no. they'd um. They'd be pre-adapted for life on uh, stormy islands so they wouldn't get blown away much. Uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but that would go with there not being very much osteological, yeah. you know, that it's not osteological because they don't yeah. actually want that huge amount of chunks of bone there. They want all the gristle. Yeah. yeah. I wonder which is which is cheaper to do, grow extra collagen and skin and stuff or bone because – I kind of, I, obviously I say this in jest, not being serious, but there is some indication that um, uh, flightless birds, small flightless birds, all those flightless rails, the ones that evolved on windy islands in the Pacific or Indian Ocean or whatever, have a uh, like greater limb bone density. Uh, it's been suggested that there may be, you know, a ballast aid to help them stay stable on windy islands. It sounds That's fairly it. doubtful, doesn't it? Well, the fact that, you know, when you're big and flightless, you tend to, you know, you have thick bones for mechanical reasons because you're running around and jumping and stuff. And uh, the extra weight is probably not very significant. But Yeah, yeah. It's well, significant mechanically when you're trying to run, but, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, people think that. We can say that. So, um, yeah. yeah, okay, right. Does that, I think that covers... So I would say, no, not a good model for large theropod feet because yeah. they're clearly selected for having a huge amount of gristle, which I would say is extremely unlikely in any wild animal. Yep, yeah. And they look gross as well. So don't put it in your art, Raven. <laughs> <laughs> Raven Although, Amos, for those of you who don't know, she's just she does brilliant uh, uh, dinosaurs and other stuff. Yep. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I've got her Bower Tyrants piece, which I haven't yet framed, but I will do once the once Tetsu Towers is complete. We're in the process of building it right now. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Although I would say that I think there's probably something going on with theropod feet that we don't quite understand. They're quite odd compared to most living animals. There's not much mechanical advantage for the the tendons. And I'm starting to think there's something weird going on there. But Something weird. Well, going- there's more soft tissue, especially around the actual ankle joint than we than we know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's, yeah, this thing of leverage, yeah. the, lack of, um, the lack of a hypertarsus yeah. or something has been yeah. noted a couple of times. Mm. Or it might be that they just didn't want the leverage. They were going for speed rather than mechanical advantage, um, which indicates that, what, they weren't... I, I don't know. That's that's odd. As I say, I think there's something to be said there, and I don't know what it is. There's, there's a story involving biomechanics yes. that, that will involve force plates and chopping up dead guinea fowl and things yeah. like that. Yeah, and removing bits of bird ankles and seeing how they perform. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. All right, I think we're done. Yeah. Well, thanks, Raven. That was a good question. Yeah, it's a good question, yeah. Always like talking about chickens. I've probably mentioned chickens in many occasions uh, over the last 47 episodes. But then, you know, we've said this before, don't mock chickens. Don't think of them as stupid, dumb little animals because it's they are, first of all, a lot more awesome than people think. I mean, chickens are just great. And (laughs) (laughs) I was photographing some chickens the other day and... uh, the, this, there were some like roosters with spurs like as long as your finger. I mean, just crazy anatomies. But also, like seriously, the significance of chickens to our history in terms of like the human story is kind of the story of chickens. It really <laughs> is. It's just unbelievable. There's a whole things in human history that happened because of chickens, like crossing the Pacific. These the major event was partially contingent on chickens the uh you know the the nutritional significance today of chickens to uh to people even in this part of the world is uh is vast the consumption of eggs and carcasses which makes me feel sad i don't think we should eat chickens but uh what animals should we eat darren bacteria but they're not animals well there you go then problem solved <laughs> So we should stop eating fish. If you eat fish, you're bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Apart from obviously uh, a few like farmed, super sustainable, easily replaced species that are in captivity, mm-hmm. you know, captive tilapia or carp. But um, yeah, if you're eating stuff from the sea, well, then you're a bad person, and I don't like you. Mm-hmm. And we should probably stop eating chickens mm-hmm. and pigs. We should definitely stop eating pigs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, uh, and um, once cows? you go, cows are we allowed well, there, to eat cows? Well, there once once you go there, then you really should stop eating cattle and probably all artiodactyls. And okay, we don't eat horses in our particular culture here in the UK. But yeah, probably should go for horses as well. Uh, definitely shouldn't be eating carnivorans. That's just not right at all. Dogs, is, yeah, eating of dogs. What's up with that? Frogs, but uh, and frogs. Now, if they were sustainably harvest and if it didn't have any impact on like, other fauna and stuff, I wouldn't have a problem with people eating frogs. But uh, even though I like frogs and I don't like the fact that people eat them, um, insects, like, fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come on. Start eating insects. More people need to eat insects. But, of course, 
That's have you have you eaten an insect, Darren? I have. Yes, I have. I've eaten lots of insects, and it made me feel very, <laughs> on, very on ill. On purpose? Yes, yes. I've eaten like mapani mapani worms, chocolate ants, mm-hmm. uh, like deep fried locusts, all those sorts of things. And it made and, you um, feel very ill. It made me feel very ill, and uh, the the ants in particular made me feel very bad. It didn't make me sick. It just gave me this like tremendous feeling of like oh, this kind of like heaviness, this like lead weight in my stomach felt really bad. And the thing I couldn't shake, the thing I couldn't shake was this like really hard to describe, but this kind of a very unpleasant kind of pseudo acidic aftertaste which I associated with um, like ladybird toxins and, and butterfly scales and stuff. Just couldn't, couldn't shake that for the whole day. So uh, I, I wouldn't... <laughs> Good advertisement for eating insects. Yeah, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> but, but maybe <laughs> but that was, other maybe people was, should eat them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Other people. Yeah, but I also don't eat seafood and stuff. And, you know, other people do that. So I don't expect people to necessarily follow what I do. My own, my own idiosyncrasies are my idiosyncrasies. But... Um, um, and the the chicken industry, do you know, like, this is a horrible subject. It's nightmare stuff. It's pure nightmare fuel, the chicken industry. The, the number of chicks that have to be killed as a product to the chicken industry is, it, it's like millions of animals and they have to be killed, have to be sh- like, so if you if you run a chicken factory and you're growing new chickens because obviously you need new laying females, well, if we've got a clutch of eggs, we don't yet have a technique whereby you can ensure that all the babies are female. They have loads of males as well, which are completely surplus. Lots of places gas them, and they're a staple for like you know uh, the zoo industry and uh, the pet industry, given to snakes or whatever. But loads of places, okay. If you're very squeamish, stop listening for a couple of seconds. Okay, here we go. A lot of places, did you know they shred them? Hmm. Like factories that, that, factories that produce, we're talking about millions of chickens a year, so like hundreds of chickens every week or thousands of chickens every week, they shred surplus male chicks. They've got like machines that are... Ch- chick shredders yeah. so you just ah oh, if you really want to find out about this if you don't believe me be careful what terms you put into google but <laughs> chick shredding <laughs> oh god it's just horrible that's yeah there's a and of course there has been what now this has become now that this has become better known there is a little bit of outcry and uh, you know people are saying this is probably not it's, it's done as as ethically as possible it's, it's near instantaneous the animals are you know mm. They, they're only aware of what's going on for like a fraction of a second before they are reduced to pulp. But um, so yeah, why would we have a problem with that? Like, is gassing any better? Why is gassing better? Because animals just go to sleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no pain involved. It's being the shredding shredded. is really pretty goddamn quick. I'm sure it's it's probably before the pain kicks in, right? Yeah, but are you telling me that you think it's as okay as gassing? Because I just, I just, yes, don't. I think morally it's fine. I think we like, well, sorry, I think it's morally equivalent. I don't think it's different. And I think just because we find it a bit gross, that's just personal, like, I don't know, squeamishness. It's not but to if, do with the reality it, yeah. of the situation. That is, it is squeamishness. And maybe we should just crush them to death, just stamp on them. That would be fine as well. Yeah, big stamp. But, um, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, but, we're going to kill but, them. 
I mean, no, the instantaneousness of it is the is the point. It's not. I think it's not whether we find it. Um... But what if it's yeah? Okay. What if gassing goes wrong? If gassing goes wrong, what happens? Okay, nothing. The bird dies more slowly. What if shredding goes wrong? The machine like accidentally, you know, half shreds the chick or runs out of power or something. Mm. And that's happened, mm. and that makes me think that it's not as cool. So. Uh, well, if gassing goes wrong, I'm sure there's breathing difficulties and stuff, isn't there? Yeah, is there pain involved in uh, at least at least that? Uh, yeah, well, I'm uh, guessing a lot of gassing does have pain involved. Yes. You think? Yeah. Why some gases different? are quite painful? Like breathing. Are they? Yeah, they don't mm-hmm. do nice things to your lungs. Well, I always just thought they were similar to like you know general anaesthetics, which. Uh, there's no pain involved in that unless you wake up during surgery or something. No, um, I don't think they're using um, anaesthetics. I think they're using probably using things like... <clears throat> yeah. So we hope you enjoyed this diversion on the ethics of uh, uh, the chicken industry. But um, Okay, I've got to say this now before I forget it. I listened to the last podcast yeah. and I found it infuriating, okay? There's something wrong with me. And I'm really sorry to listeners. I don't know if I don't know if I do this all the time. I've only just learned about it. But in the previous podcast, tell me if you've heard this. You notice this is in between saying something. Every time I stop, I go like that all the time, and it just Jesus Christ! I couldn't listen to that. So, so if our readership has dropped. From the three point something millions down to the two point something millions, you'll know it's why. It's because of that, which you've never done before. So I've made a conscious effort this time not to do it, but then I found myself doing it a minute ago. I don't know why. It bothers me a lot. Yeah, so, um, you should probably just not worry about it. Uh, I, I, do you want to know why it bothers me a lot? Why? Because it's one of the, Because it's one of those. There's a series of uh, things that people do you know, non-vocal signals, body language and noises which are associated with a smug sense of egotisticness. Whistling. Like, whistling, like, for oh, example. Whistling. God, I hate whistling so much. Yeah. Yeah. Whistling and sort of uh, body language <laughs> things, you know, sort of... Which all really bother you for some reason. Yeah, they do. Really, really. They bother me immensely in other people. And, uh, and they <laughs> But bother most me alone. people are not so bothered by these things, you know? Well, they should be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. We should all be more bothered by the things that you might do so that you can be angry at yourself for doing things that most people don't care about, but you do. Or, if I haven't noticed them, that's fine. That's fine. Well, they've noticed them now. Thanks, Darren. So, so my apologies, my sincere apologies. I'm, I'm serious about this. You know, I'm sorry to people. Who, I can't believe people haven't caught up, caught up on that. Because um, well, we do have people in the comments who say... <laughs> who is it? Apologies if you're a res- regulist. I don't know your name. But there's someone a few episodes back that said, what's with all the inhaling noises? <laughs> and I said, and I responded saying... That was done deliberately yeah. to make you cross or something. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. How about, how about you, commenter, try to do a podcast without breathing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
okay. We've got okay. a little time. Yes. Yeah. Right. So let's do this new slimline wrap-up that we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been practicing this, uh, uh, the way we close the show. Okay. If you like what we talk about and our stuff, then go to... That's the wrong list. <laughs> that's the old <laughs> one. Oh, you've ruined was, it already. I was going to start talking about the Squamazoic. Yeah. Okay. Go to irregularbooks.co, where we have our books on sale please buy them if you haven't done so already uh, we really appreciate your support john and i are both uh, on patreon uh, which is just great it's working very well thank you to my patrons patrons you got me doing it as well patreon.com forward slash tet where you can see stuff that i'm putting together for the big book the giant textbook that I'm working on and which I'm aiming to finish this year. Of course, once that's done, there's other stuff I want to get done. John's on Patreon as well at... Uh, Patreon.com forward slash John Conway. Yep. And And both of us have tiers of... What do you call them? Level to pledges where you get free, free cash for questions. So if you're a cash for questioner, consider that. Um... What else? Twitter? Um, Redbubble shops. We've both uh, got Redbubble shops. There's so, so there's get merchandise. Yeah. You can get merch. You can get Tetsu merchandise. How cool is that? Go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Tetsu for the various stylish T-shirts, bedspreads, mobile phone covers, mugs, and tote bags <laughs> <laughs> that, that I do featuring monitor lizards I'm always toting stuff I should get one of those toting bags but then there's also a uh, podcast um, uh, Redbubble shop uh, yeah uh, which is at the same URL Tetrapodcats Tetrapodcasts we love seeing people wearing our t-shirts so you know if you get one and then get a photograph of yourself, preferably doing some, preferably doing something interesting, uh, or with an interesting animal, a non, or it can be a non-human animal even. Um, uh, yeah, and there's a tapir t-shirt because now this has not really become known that well yet, but recently I have learned that a new species of tapir was discovered. Was really? discovered. Well, it was found in. Uh, in several locations in North and South America, both in Brazil and also in, I don't know, Colombia or something like that. And uh, Mario Coswell and colleagues, they looked around. They were surprised to discover that there was actually a specimen in the American Museum of Natural History in the collections, and it had been there since about 1912. Um, and uh, they wrote this up in Journal of Mammalogy, quite an interesting case. This specimen was actually collected by Teddy Roosevelt, who shot this animal back in... Uh... Ah, see, I did that noise! See, it's associated. Okay, right. Yeah, it's tape ears and uh, Twitter. <clears throat> now I'm on Twitter at Stormtroopers. Here we're in danger. I must tell the others. Oh no, I've been shot. Ah, <laughs> uh, classic. Um, yep, and I'm at the John Conway on Twitter. That is. So okay. there you go. Right. Right, and thus we draw a curtain or a line under or around the episode 47. Next time, (laughs) drinking game. Drinking game. 